You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War episode 108. This episode, just like every episode, is brought to you by people just like you. Yes, you who have chosen to support the podcast on Patreon. By doing so, you gain access to special Patreon-only episodes. More importantly, you get access to the special warm, fuzzy feeling, only available for those who support the show. If you like the idea of a special warm, fuzzy feeling, head over to patreon.com slash historyofthegreatwar to check it out. Last episode, we looked at the food situation in Germany during the war. And this episode, will begin by looking at Germany's two most important allies, Austria-Hungary and the Ottoman Empire. Austria would be in a position similar to that of Germany, although it would in general be far worse, especially in the Austrian heartland and in the capital of Vienna. For the Ottomans, their situation would more closely resemble that of Russia, where there was food produced in the empire in some quantity, but they found it very difficult to then transport that food to the population centers, particularly the, con- the capital of Constantinople. The second half of this episode will cover some of the other things that the countries did during the war to try and keep the morale and support for the war high on the home front. We will particularly focus on the central powers and Britain during this discussion, because there will be quite a lengthy discussion of Russia and France in later episodes, as I think it's essential to roll those discussions in with the chronicles of the Russian Revolution and the French mutinies. The central powers would have something of a crisis on their hands during the war, with a constant need to convince their citizens that the war was still winnable, and when that started to disconnect from reality, the governments had to find ways to contain their, pe- their people's anger and frustrations, and in some cases, desperation. In Britain, the government would struggle with public opinion, as the society was called upon in ways that it had not felt since the days of Napoleon. Before the war, Austria-Hungary had been self-sufficient when it came to its food supply. Because of this, the government had every right to be optimistic about what the situation would be if and when the war started. However, through a variety of issues and a healthy dose of official incompetence, Austria would find itself far worse off than its German ally. And in fact, there would be several instances where the empire would have to import food from Germany, which is just a bit crazy. The first problem was a military one. Right from the start of the war, the Russians invaded Galatia, and the Austrians were mostly powerless to stop them. This meant that the Austrian army was pushed back to the Carpathian Mountains. 
The loss of the land was bad for many reasons. But few were more important than the fact that the war that before the war, the area lost had raised a third of the cattle and a third of the wheat and half of the potatoes available to the empire. It also contained a much smaller proportion of the entire population while producing those goods. So the loss of these food items was harder felt than even those percentages I just mentioned would lead you to believe. The next problem was the same as every country was having at this time, and that was the huge loss of manpower on the farms, which caused a decrease in production almost across the board. The final problem was one specific to the Austro-Hungarian Empire. In general, there was a lack of solidarity between the Austrian and Hungarian sides of the empire, and this manifested in a situation similar to what was happening in Germany with Bavaria that we discussed last episode, only on a much larger scale. The Austrian half of the empire was heavily dependent on Hungary for food that it produced, and the Hungarians had a large food surplus early in the war. However, by 1916, Hungarian exports to Austria had dropped dramatically. This was because of a general decrease in supply, but more importantly due to the resistance of the Hungarian landed aristocracy. This group of citizens in Hungary held a disproportionate amount of power within the government, and this prevented the Hungarian government from imposing the kinds of price ceilings and mandatory requisitions which were present in other countries during the war. This group, the landed aristocracy, simply refused to export their food, even when the Austrians were literally starving to death. This issue was unique to the dual monarchy nature of the empire, and the makeup of the Hungarian portion of that monarchy, but it shows one of the greatest weaknesses of that system, with one side, in this case the Austrian side, not able to exert the kind of power needed during total war to keep its people fed. Because of all of these problems, the Austrians began introducing rationing in early 1915. At first, it was bread and flour, and in these efforts, they were different than some other countries. Instead of making sure that everybody got their fair share, the government wanted to try and make some money off the situation. To do this, they set up a a scenario where people could buy the amount of bread on their ration ticket for a certain somewhat reasonable fee, but then they could also buy more at a heavy markup. This helped the government to then subsidize the price ceiling on the normal ration of bread and to help meet the needs of most of the population who couldn't afford bread sort of in the first place. This was not a horrible system in theory, but the most important requirement is that there had to be some level of surplus beyond basic needs to sell for that higher price, and this would very rapidly not be the case. As the shortages increased, people then tried to hoard their food. I think this is a very reasonable reaction for the population in this sort of situation to take. There was not much food, so they tried to get as much as possible and store it for later. However, there's a big problem with this, and it was just that people did not know how to store food in a long-term situation. Long-term food storage in any situation is hard. And most private citizens in Austria-Hungary at this time did not have the knowledge, experience, or facilities to make it work. Because of this, a huge amount of the food spoiled, molded, or went rancid. As supplies continued to shrink even further, the ration lines lengthened. By the spring of 1917 in Vienna, a city hit the hardest, maybe of any in the empire, a quarter million people, or more than one-tenth of the city's population, stood in food lines every day. 
These lines would start to form at 10 p.m. the night before, and if you were not there by midnight, the chances of you getting food rapidly declined. As it was, 20% of the people in line generally left with nothing. In such an atmosphere, morale, perseverance, and patriotism became currencies in short supply. Inflation in the empire would hit the lower classes hard. The general cost of living was 2.5 times higher in 1916, and by the end of the year, it would balloon to six times higher. The empire, in rickety financial situations before the war even started, found itself unable to compensate even the skilled war industry workers. By 1918, Czech workers in Bohemia were at wages that gave them just 35% of the purchasing power that they had had before the war, and they were the lucky ones. Much like in Germany, the Austrian war bread went from something that resembled peacetime bread to something that was cut so much by substitutes that it barely resembled bread at all. Lentils, peas, chestnuts, soybeans, clover, everything was used to try and stretch the rye and potato and maybe some wheat that was available. By the end of the war, even this was not greatly helping, and the ration for Vienna was down to a thousand calories a day. All across the empire, and to a lesser extent in Germany, children were sent to the countryside from the cities. These children were expected to work in the fields, while their caregivers were expected to feed them, while also receiving some monetary compensation from the government. This could not happen for everybody, though. During the last years of the war, children in Vienna almost stopped growing at all, because their nutrition was so poor. So 12- and 14-year-old children were more reminiscent of sickly 8- or 10-year-olds from before the war. They were a generation starved by war, and they would be the generation that 25 years later would have to send their own children out into the countryside once again, although in that case not to avoid starvation, but instead Allied bombing. One final country that we will touch on is the Ottoman Empire. For this empire, the pinch was felt the hardest in the largest city and capital of Constantinople. The issue was that the city got most of its food in peacetime from the various waterways into the city, the Bosphorus and the Black Sea from the north, and the Dardanelles and the Mediterranean to the south, were all critical to keeping the capital fed. Due to the efforts of the Russian and British navy, many of these routes became unusable, and instead they were forced to look to land-based transportation to make up for the shortage, which was a real challenge. The city ate through what supplies it had, and then things started to get tight. Early in the war, there was more than enough food in the empire, but it was very difficult to transport it from where it was to the cities where it was needed. After the first year of the war, even the more agriculturally inclined areas were running short. This was due to the burden of conscripting so many of the men into the army, especially from the areas of the empire that were most fertile, like parts of Asia Minor. This resulted in the amount of land being cultivated reduced by half during the war, not due to lack of demand, but instead due to the simple lack of labor. Unlike in Germany, France, or Britain, there was not a large amount of mechanization of the farming, which might have allowed them to handle so many men being pulled away, so much of the land could only lay fallow just due to lack of hands. There would be acute bread shortages across the empire in 1917, made worse by corruption in the government, which often kept what supplies were available out of the hands of those that needed it the most. This was done for the sole purpose of increasing profits. 
For both the Ottomans and the Austrians, the worst part was that they definitely could have both handled their needs just fine and kept all their citizens well-fed if things had went a little different. Maybe if fewer men were needed at the front for so long, maybe if few, a few better management decisions were made by the government, they could have utilized their agricultural strengths to keep the food flowing during the war. Instead of being a strength, though, food production in both empires became their greatest weakness, which would slowly sap the ability of both countries to continue their role in the war. By 1918, both the army and the citizens back home would be half-starved shadows of their former selves, barely able to offer physical, emotional, or mental resistance. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options. In stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. Now we move on to talking about a different important aspect of the war, morale, both at the home and at the front. For citizens of the countries in the war, they were often fed a steady diet of propaganda from their governments, often with the press helping it along. Ludendorff would say of propaganda that, quote, good propaganda must keep well ahead of actual political events. It must act as pacemaker to policy and mold public opinion without appearing to do so, end quote. Sometimes this propaganda was close to the truth, but sometimes it crossed a line into straight falsehood that maybe took some small grain of truth, but then twisted it and expanded it so that little of the truth could be found. An example of this would be the atrocities in Belgium that were done by the Germans. They absolutely happened. Civilians were absolutely killed by German military soldiers and officers. However, the press in Britain blew it completely out of proportion, greatly inflating the numbers of those affected and the motivation of the Germans. Photographs of old Russian programs against the Jews were used to punctuate the situation, claiming, of course, that they were from Belgium. This is just one example of an entire list where the governments and the press took something and made it much larger than it was, all in the name of keeping the ever-critical public support behind the war. 
This had one very tragic downside, outside of, you know, the whole lying to their citizens bit. The governments were very good at these lies. So good that they made their citizens believe that their very way of life would be destroyed if they lost the war. This created a situation that when it came time to negotiate peace, the negotiators had almost no wiggle room because they were hemmed into a position of maximum punishment due to how they had built the war to that point with their people. Every government had raised the stakes of the war beyond all reason in the name of maintaining support, and they could not in the end bring it back down to earth. For the French and British, they had told their people that the goal of the war was to destroy Prussian militarism, to crush Germany's power to wage a future war. They were fighting the war to end all future wars before they even started. And this made it easy for the Germans to preach to their populations that they were fighting for their very survival, that the enemy would tear it all down. Therefore, nobody could suggest a peace on real terms. They could not entertain peace before somebody had been pushed to the very end of their strength. When peace did finally come, they could not negotiate in good faith and instead had to punish the losers, punish them in a way that they could never possibly recover, I, or maybe just like 15 years later, and then they'd come back with a vengeance. But they weren't thinking about that in 1919. For their part, the British understood early on that they would need a propaganda campaign to keep the public behind the government, and it would have to be of a tremendous scale. Because of this, Charles Masterman was put in charge of the effort, and to accomplish it, he reached out to all the literary heavyweights of British society. Thomas Hardy, Arthur Conan Doyle, H.G. Wells, just to name a few. They all came together to write a letter to the British people, to plead with them to fight for the ideals of Western Europe against the militarism of Germany. This was just one of the early efforts, and soon the War Propaganda Bureau was pushing out countless propaganda items, books, pamphlets, newspapers, posters, every possible way to communicate with the people was used. These items were created by the Bureau, but were not published by it. Instead, the government reached out to the publishing houses of Britain and had them print and distribute copies to try and maintain some feeling of legitimacy. It was a clever game. In many ways, it worked. In the early months of the war, they focused on Belgium, and they made every whisper of a rumor of a German action a front-page story. Later, they would move on to other items. After the initial rush of volunteers began to taper off, they started to put their weight behind their recruiting efforts. They always tried to utilize famous authors for these efforts, with a great example being Rudyard, Rudyard Kipling, who would initially be a strong supporter of the war. He would write, what will be the position in years to come of the young man who has deliberately elected to outcast himself from this all-embracing brotherhood? Kipling would also give his son, just 17 years old at the time, permission to go on overseas service, a tale with its own tragic ending. There are just a f These are just a few of the examples, though, and the Propaganda Bureau was active throughout the war, and they would have a discernible effect on the mindset of British society. Maybe not enough to keep the number of volunteers up to the required levels, but enough to firmly paint the Germans as a monstrous enemy, the Dirty Hun. Propaganda was just as important to the Central Powers during the war, especially began as, it, as it began to go badly later on. They pushed slogans like Siegfrieden, or Peace Through Victory. During the first two years of the war, this was enough, because there was great success at the front, However, in 1916, things began to change. 
By the end of the year, over a million German soldiers had been killed. Sure, there had been successes in Belgium and northern France and a good bit of Russia. All were in German hands. But this did not seem to offset the cost to the average German, who was having problems finding food. Here is John Keegan from the First World War. Quote, By the end of 1916, life for most citizens became a time of eating meals never entirely filling, living in underheated homes, wearing clothing that proved difficult to replace, and walking with leaky shoes. It meant starting and ending the day with substitutes for nearly everything. End quote. The hunger that everybody felt was just the most noticeable and constant irritant, and unfortunately for the government, the blame for these shortages had shifted by the end of 1916, away from the British blockade and onto the government. Confidence in Berlin would reach a new low in 1916, and when they put out a call for the fifth war loan, they were met with anything but enthusiastic support. War loans were a critical way for the government to leverage the wealth of its citizens to finance the war, and the first several had received quite had been received quite well, but by the fifth, this was not the case. Instead of lining up to give people give the money to the government, people were instead actively withdrawing money from their savings accounts because of rumors that the government was going to start confiscating money directly from the citizens to pay for the war. There was also growing distrust within society as well, primarily between the urban and rural segments of society. Both were united in only one sentiment, that the government was powerless to help them against their internal hardships, even if they could protect them from external enemies. It was all of this that resulted in strikes increasing between 1915 and 1916 more than five times over, with the number of workdays lost in 1916 totaling almost a quarter of a million, at a time when Germany needed every last shell and gun at the front. It was under these conditions that Bethman Holwig began to push for peace talks in late 1916, which we talked about in episode 104, and it was also against these conditions that Hindenburg and Ludendorff came to power and retrenched and pushed for greater economic productivity, greater government control, greater societal exertion as they prepared to take the war to another level and to see it through. They did not want peace through negotiation or peace through understanding. They wanted peace through victory. There was no nation that should have been more concerned about internal morale and unity when the war started than Austria-Hungary. It was made up of countless ethnicities, all of them with their own thoughts and desires, and the growing trend of nationalism. Nowhere was this better illustrated than when the Reichstrat reopened in May 1917, which could be considered their biggest propaganda move of the war. The Reichsrat was the legislature of the empire. Think the House of Commons or maybe the U.S. House of Representatives. It had been suspended when the war started, but was reopened in 1917, with the hope that by doing so, the government could garner more support from the people of the empire. However, it was during this opening, and the statements made by the various groups within the empire, that it was shown that the empire was still very much a group of people with competing demands. The Czech Union's chairman would read out a statement that said, quote, The representatives of the Czech nation are deeply convinced that the present dualist system has led to the emergence of a ruling and subject nationalities, which is detrimental to the interests of all of them, and that in order to remove every national injustice and ensure the general development of each nation in the interest of the empire and dynasty as it is 
whole and necessary to transform the Habsburg-Lorraine monarchy into a federal union of free and equal nation-states, basing ourselves at this historic moment on the natural right of nations to self-determination and free development, reinforced moreover in our case with inalienable historic rights. We shall demand the unification of all branches of the Czechoslovak nation in one democratic state, including the Slovak branch, living as a unit contiguous with its Czech motherland. End quote. In short, they wanted a complete reworking of how the empire worked, all of its power structures, all of its organizations, in 1917, when the nation was deep in a seemingly never-ending war. The Czechs held the power to sort of back up their demands as well. They were often well-educated, and they represented a good amount of the empire's industrial capacity in Bohemia. They were also joined in this call by the southern Slavs, the Slovenes, Croats, and Serbs, who wanted their own autonomous state within the empire. The goal of reopening the Reichstag had been to make the people feel like they were more involved, and to co-opt their representatives to gain support for the war. In this effort, it was partially successful. However, it could not undo the economic hardships suffered by the people of the empire. In 1918, the private correspondence of the people of the empire, as collected by imperial censors, point to a population around the empire that, if not in full-blown revolutionary mindset, at the very least felt completely alienated from Vienna. Austria-Hungary is one example of a country where propaganda was not enough to bring the citizens behind the government, and they would not be alone in this failing. Italy and Russia would find its citizens losing all confidence in their government, and even in almighty Germany there would be unrest, a situation which we will discuss next episode.